Hello and welcome to the latest edition of From the Dugout. Today I'm joined by former Kilmarnock manager, now the current Northern Ireland women's team manager, Kenny Shields. Kenny, I'm absolutely delighted to have you on today. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Andre. No problems. Well, I'll start with the, the kind of standard question that I've been asking all my guests. It's been a difficult time. Obviously, lockdown has hampered football. The women's game has suffered a lot. Uh, obviously, just complete suspension of play. How, how have you coped without football, which has obviously been such a, a massive part of your life for so many years? Yeah. We've been quite lucky in, in Northern Ireland in comparison with Scotland, England and Wales because we've um, we're not as I don't think we're as densely populated and certainly we have um, taken measures but not too strict if you know what I mean because yeah. there's a thin line between uh, mental health and human health and there's a massive amount of it, it, I think it's exasperated the mental health side of things where people have been in sport all their life. I would put myself in this category where you're dependent on the vehicle of, of uh, your sport. And when that's taken away in one fell swoop, it's, it's very, very difficult. I think the drip feed back in again uh, has been good in, in Northern Ireland, but not so good in Scotland. I think they're maybe over precautious in certain areas, but it's difficult for the government and uh, the likes of the girl Sturgeon to make the right decisions. But I think they haven't the knowledge which um, from a sporting background, if you understand what I mean, and I think that has hampered the progress. Uh, people have become frustrated. And then you know what they do when frustration sets in. They just go and do what they want. But over here, we've been, we've been quite lucky, I think. Touch wood. And how have you been able to communicate with your players? And your, your squad, obviously, being a, an international manager, you've got that limited time with your players at the best of times. So has this presented a, a different challenge as well in terms of keeping in touch and, and keeping the communication going? Yeah, well, we've been in now uh, for the last two months, actually. Whenever lockdown was lifted, whatever that was, and we, we were very stringent in what we did at the start, very uh, much emphasised towards the pandemic rules and restrictions and it, it started off with um, three players in each half of the pitch and then we went to 10 in each half and then we started to play games and under strict supervision um, we filmed our actual training and it was really good and I think we deserve credit for that because if you're working for the international setup of and the Irish Football Association, you've got to be squeaky clean. And we did everything around the restrictions of uh, the pandemic. And we got them working on 11 v 11 now. And we've kept their fitness up. And match conditioning is, is the important thing. Like we have three girls I've helped to get over to Scotland now. And I would like to think that they're in, in, in tip-top ship with uh, Demi Vansett Rangers and um, Lauren Wade at Glasgow City and Megan, who's got a little injury that she got in Scotland. And we've looked after her as well. So we're trying to make sure the girls are in the right ship and the right condition not just for ourselves, but for going over to play for their clubs. It's certainly a, a game that's really rising to prominence. The, the World Cup got great coverage across the board last summer, but the kick-on as well, you, you look at the likes of Rangers and Celtic in Scotland, you know from, from managing at Kilmarnock that Rangers and Celtic 
don't really stand for being best of the rest. They've got to be the best. And, and Glasgow yeah. City's dominance of women's football in Scotland is, is really going to be challenged this season, particularly with Rangers, who seem to be doing really good business. And they're, certainly going, be, they're certainly going to be challenged financially, and, and it doesn't always work. But, you know, if they're putting you know, a lot of money towards that, then they're going to have a better product, which stands to common sense. And certainly uh, Glasgow City will, uh, I would have thought, I don't know, but I would have thought that Glasgow City couldn't compete financially. And that usually, the transition there is they won't be able to compete competitively either. But I'm sure they've got a good manager and he'll do all he can to, sustain what they've achieved so far it must be very satisfying as a, a manager in the women's game to see that kind of rise to prominence for the women's game it's uh, it's something that I think a lot of people have a lot more respect for and are actually taking the time to watch it and assess the product rather than the, the maybe snap judgments that were made previously I think the the beauty of the game and the way the game should be played, I see it quite a lot in, in the women's game. Uh, more so than the men's game, actually, because obviously the men's game is a much more vibrant and stronger product. But the women's game can be better from a spectator's point of view to watch the, the, the actual game being played. Uh, I think it's better from, uh, how can I put it, as a spectacle, it's better and the, the quality and the style of play is better because there's not as much physique in it, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And because of that, the, the, the girls can express themselves with the ball and um, do lots of things and we get really good patterns of play and the girls are excited by what's happening. And I'm sure that over in Scotland, the women's football will be the exact same. But they'll try to have an entertaining product. Whereas in the men's game, sometimes physique gets in the way of that. And it's a kick and rush in a lot of instances. But if you take Celtic, especially out of the equation in, in the men's game, and to a lesser extent, Rangers, it's good quality. You know, it's sorry, they have good quality, but it's it doesn't go right down the league format. And uh, I'm seeing Celtic so dominant again, it's it's going to be hard to catch them. But I'm sure that when Rangers and Celtic get toe to toe, it will be exciting as well. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting season ahead. And you look at the changes in the, the men's side with Northern Ireland over the, the summer months, an appointment of a new manager, former Motherwell manager Ian Barraclough yeah. getting the job, uh, Tommy Wright was, was heavily linked with the job Motherwell manager just now, Stephen Robinson was was heavily tipped as well what is, what's your relationship like with Ian and it's huge, huge boots to fill that isn't it in, in terms of taking over from Michael O'Neill who did Wonders for the, the Northern Irish side. Yeah, I have a good relationship with Ian. I was actually contacted to apply for the job also. Um, and I was one of the five that was uh, asked to come for an interview. And I, um, obviously, with Michael being friendly with the other four, it helped their kiss. And I wasn't expecting to get it, but I was honoured to be nominated for an um, an interview which was great I, I was felt really proud of that and I think there's kisses for all five who were interviewed and Ian will do a good job I'm sure it was a good appointment and both the, the managers I mentioned there in, in terms of Tommy Wright and Stephen Robinson just now Tommy Wright had, had so many great years at St Johnston a, a yeah. remarkable job and such a a limited budget 
and Stephen Robinson, another Northern Irish manager that's that's really coming up trumps and seems to have such great respect in the, the Scottish game. He's got a real eye for a player and attracting maybe, I would say, coming almost like a rough diamonds type thing where he'll, he'll bring guys from lower leagues of England, maybe that have lost their way in the game somewhat, and he, mm. he's able to build them up and give them a platform to play. And these guys seem to be excelling. Muddle finishing third last season. Yeah. They're doing a good job over there, without a doubt. I think that uh, the location of Morrowell is a big advantage, I feel. Um, and whereas St. Johnson with Tommy is a much more difficult gig. And, you know, I feel that managers could be judged on what they've won and the game and, and Tommy has done outstanding at St Johnson and Stephen's done well at Motherwell as well and he has got uh, good people behind him too to help Motherwell, they're a club that is very underrated, if you look when Stuart was there as well he'd done fantastically well too so you know it's not a shock to me that Motherwell have done well uh, Sustaining that will probably be the most difficult part. And, you know, the Celtic and Rangers, the powers that they are, they need to be, Rangers need to win the league this year, I feel. And Celtic are really mad looking at 10th uh, in succession. But it gets a wee bit mundane for the people of Scotland, I'm sure, where Celtic and Rangers are dominating again if you go back to the years when it was uh, way back when there was 20 teams in the in the top league it was called division one then and um, you know the likes of Clyde and teams like that were in the lower regions of the of division one it was like seven and eight now when they played them you know the bit old firm played them so they had to do something about that and they were just the league you know, 12's good, but there's so many different views on that, and if they went to 10, I think it would be stronger again, to be honest. And, you know, people think, oh, I, here we go, playing the same team four times. I can appreciate that, but they're going to have a better quality of of competition. Well, that's, that's really interesting, what, in terms of, obviously, yourself, you, you managed at Kilmarnock, Kilmarnock aside that they give both ends of the ground to Rangers and Celtic. So you're you're effectively outnumbered in your own home when when Rangers and Celtic are visiting. Yeah. They, they've obviously got the, the reach and with all due respect to, to Kilmarnock, they they don't they don't fill the stadium. I mean it's a, it's a big stadium, uh, obviously nearly twenty thousand capacity. But in terms of you're outnumbered in your own home that must give the visiting side such a, a big lift coming out and, and seeing all of their own fans there. Do you think that the dynamic will change with no fans in the ground? It, it didn't seem to hamper Celtic yesterday. With the, they were very comfortable against Hamilton. Rangers yeah. obviously opening the season with a win as well. Do you think that that will play into the hands of the smaller teams? Or or is it that it lift take, that... It might take away the... Uh... For some young players, the fear of playing against Celtic at Parkhead is, is a big is a big thing. I feel that if you look at into it really deeply, that the atmosphere is is it's not the same without supporters. It is really really chronic, and I would love to see the crowds back and probably drip fed in. We had the Irish Cup final on Friday night here. And they allowed 500 spectators and I think if we could just do that, it's, but, but in Scotland, Celtic and Rangers are so passionate about their team. Probably proportionately, Kilmarnock maybe are the only team that could get, uh, like if they had social distancing in the stands for non-old firm games, they could accommodate, I, I'm sure, because there'd be space, more spaces, because let's face it, with the Venetian, Kilmarnock Venetian 20,000 seater stadium, 
and they get four and a half thousand for normal games, you know, like Ross County and Hibs and Hearts and teams like that. So during those games, I'm sure they could do that, but it's a tremendous disadvantage to Kilmarnock, I found, for the home games that the, the atmosphere is not the same back then with uh, because there's so many empty seats when you're at home. I think proportionately Kilmarnock would have the most negative point in that there. But from a positive point of view, you know, as you say, when Kilmarnock were playing the old firm, they sold more seats to the opponents than they had for their own home crowd. And that rankled the, the local support a lot. And the chairman and the local support weren't seeing the same picture. The chairman, who you can't blame, was looking to get as much for the economy of the club to get as many bums and seats as possible. Whereas the home supporters took offence where, why is my seat, my uh, season ticket seat been given to a Celtic supporter or a Rangers supporter? So there's you can't please everyone in that situation. It's a very difficult climate. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a difficult one. Obviously, you can see it from, from both views as, as someone yeah. that is a season ticket holder and, and, and ploughing their hard earned into the the football yeah. club that they love, it, it can be disappointing to see rival fans getting priority over them, and, and you can kind of yeah. see why they, why they take that view. We'll talk about your arrival at Kilmarnock. You were obviously at Tranmere Rovers as head of youth uh, until 2010. Then you joined Kelly as assistant to Mixu Patalainen. Yeah. What, what was your first impressions of Scottish football? Obviously, that was your almost kind of dipping your toes into the water in Scottish football for the first time? Well, I had, I had studied it a long time because I went up there uh, prior to that for many years watching my son play for Hibernian. So I went to a lot of his games and I was able to see the product before I went to Scotland. So I had a fair idea of, of how they wanted to play and, you know, the size of the crowds, the atmosphere, the, all of that stuff. I was sort of like prepared for all of that. Um, and we had a really good, with a systematic way of playing, which I helped. And in terms of a year later, Mexico would leave to take the, the Finland job. Uh, you had a spell as caretaker manager and then were promoted to, to manager. A big addition that you made as well at that time was bringing in the, the experience of Jimmy Nicholl as well, who has had a, a fantastic career in, in management in Scottish football. Yeah. How, how important was that to have a such a, a strong assistant? Your backroom staff is the most important, one of the most important parts of the mechanism uh, and the strategy of your how you want your team to perform but also the dynamic of the club from the, the staff perspective is vitally important. I've been to clubs where I've just inherited, uh, I made mistakes by inheriting the previous and it was a mistake. Whereas this time I kept some of the previous, like the physiotherapist, um, kit man, goalkeeping coach, but I felt at the top end of the field staff, I needed to get someone like Jimmy in. And I got him in and it was good. It was really, really good. Uh, we had a good understanding of what we wanted. So I brought my own man in as, as my assistant. And we were able to impose ourselves on what had to be done. A very significant victory in your, your early stage at Kilmarnock was the 1-0 victory over Rangers in uh, November 2011. That was the first victory for Kelly in 17 years at Rugby Park over Rangers. And a, a victory that you, you quite rightly lauded is, is so significant. The other thing I remember about that was you were very outspoken about the people of Kilmarnock that sit in the house and watch Rangers or Celtic and don't get behind their local team. And I think that resonated with quite a lot of fans of of clubs out with 
the, the so-called big two in Scotland, or we definitely are the big two in Scotland, uh, that that was something that fans of other teams, I can remember, really back in your case, because of the likes of, of any town, whether it be Perth or Motherwell, there's, there's so many buses leave for Ibrox and Celtic Park, despite the fact that their teams are performing in the top league of Scotland and, and performing well. Um, it, it, it really struck a chord with so many fans of, of clubs out yeah. with Rangers and Celtic. See, I, I would like to say on record that I wasn't outspoken, I just told the truth. There's a distinct difference because I tend to be near the knuckle a lot when I speak about questions that have been asked and I felt that the timing was right to say that and it increased our support, believe it or not, at the time. If you go back through the stats um, and in 17 years they hadn't beat Rangers in 57 years they hadn't beaten Celtic. We achieved both of them actually twice, three times in the one year and if you look at it that was a significant result. And then we travelled to Ibrox and beat them there under very intimidating circumstances because it was around the time of the Rangers were being uh, on the verge of being relegated because of the, the whole system. They were going for the title. The atmosphere was unbelievable at Ibrox that day because they were feeling hard done by. So they had something to prove. And they had all the stars playing, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And so we went and beat them up there as well. So and we beat Celtic twice that year. So it was fantastic achievements. But I felt that emanated from what you said, where I spoke the truth about what had been happening around the, the uh, 25,000 town of Kilmarnock, where supporters were going to support Rangers and Celtic and what happened was we actually started to turn the tables with the the big two we beat them on four occasions Uh, so I have to say that it was uh, it it was down to that there where we wrangled a few people because the supporters who lived the old firm supporters who lived in Kilmarnock were taken aback by what I said but I was only telling the truth but I had a more measured view of that than the actual Scottish people because I come from Northern Ireland and I see it. I, I seen it during the troubles that there were Celtic supporters and Rangers supporters travelling back and forward to Scotland. But I seen it at home where they had their rivalry and their bitterness to, to that extent even. Uh, against each other so I was in a perfect position to judge that wouldn't happen in Northern Ireland where someone living in West Belfast would uh, support Glentoran in the east or someone in the South Belfast area where Linfield play they wouldn't be supporting Cliftonville in the north of the, of the city so that, that's an, that wouldn't happen in Northern Ireland so I was in a good position to emphasise that point. Hey, how does the offer of free beer sound to you? Yes, free beer. Thanks to our friends at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to beer52.com forward slash MFC, pay the postage, and what's more, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's a total of ten free beers. Beer52.com forward slash MFC. It's, it's quite interesting looking back in that as well. You had the the column in the, the Daily Record as well, which is it's kind of not something that it tends to happen now, where you'll get a lot of views from from ex players and ex managers, but a current manager of a side having a the vehicle to to express yourself in the newspaper column, it it's an interesting one, and you had a bit of a a fractured relationship with the press at times here. I, I think that there's there's always a spin on on stories, uh, and I, I yeah. think that teams out with the the top two maybe struggle for 
for column entries, you certainly were able to garner a lot of headlines through a, your column and also your kind of your quite outspoken nature at press conferences as well. I think that um, I underestimated how strong the press were uh, in Scotland and how much uh, impact they had in the Scottish game through their broadsheets and through their uh, newspaper columns and all of that. And in hindsight, you know, I've never got into any bar with press anywhere else in the world where I've worked all over. And it was just, I felt I was naive. I underestimated them. And I feel that, you know, if I was on that journey again in Scotland, it would be a totally different approach by me. I would be very, very, I would be more closed than what I was. I, I did have some tactical nice in terms of using the press to help my players, to protect my players, and to sort of um, distort the opposition into uh, certain situations. Because quite often I was playing against managers who were angry, and and it was good because they were, you know, they slipped up with their, they let their guard come down, and I think we got good results from that, especially the bigger clubs. Like when you beat Celtic twice, Rangers twice, Hibs, Hearts, Aberdeen, all in the same period of of that process. That was unheard of, and it's still unheard of. Uh, and and I think I got success from how I spoke in the press. People overlooked that. And, uh, you know, the, the psychology of it was quite often the timing of, this, of what I was saying was, if you go back through it, it was very much uh, tactical. Yeah, it certainly garnered... Excellent results. The League Cup victory is, is obviously the kind of defining moment of your, of your time in Scotland. The semi-final, the derby against the United, here obviously in the division below, unfancied underdogs, a game at Hampden. There's a, there's a real passionate rivalry between Kelly and Air United. Yeah. Was that a a no-win situation almost. You, you just had to get the result no matter what. I think if we'd lost that match, it would have been suicidal. You know, it was it was not... Uh, there was a lot of pressure on the players. Uh, and these players, don't forget, hadn't played, with the exception of Dean, my son, and two or three others, they hadn't played in a stadium or a crowd of that amount uh, against and, and being favourites. Do you know what I mean? A Scottish club playing at Hamden, apart from the old firm, if they're playing the old firm in the final, they're massive underdogs. It was very seldom you would play at Hamden with a club the size of Kilmarnock and be the favourites. Do you understand me? Mm-hmm. It, it, it put a little bit of uh, pressure. So I felt we did our homework well. And like the domination in that game, 35 attempts at goal, was like amazing. You, you thought it was never going to come. And they didn't show any attacking flair at all. I don't think they maybe, I don't think they'd have shot at goal. I'm not sure exactly, but it was very negative in their behalf. And I felt they could have came and had a goal because we weren't world beaters if you know what I mean. And it was they were playing us just like as if they were playing at Parkhead against Celtic. So I felt that we deserved, obviously we deserved to win that game, but it was coming, what, six minutes to go? Was it 68 minutes left and, and when Dean scored? So I thought that justice was done. It would have been a travesty if we hadn't won the game. And that put you into the final, obviously. The game against Celtic, certainly not going into that game as favourites. Uh, and what what story, the, the detail of intro and how it pops up with the, the winning goal. Remarkable celebrations after that game. 
in in a day that is mm. just so unfortunately tinged with with real tragedy as well. That must have been an absolute roller coaster of emotions, not just for yourself but the Kilmarnock supporters, yeah. your playing squad, and and it was it was down to you to be the the spokesperson to to rally your team. I can I can remember the the following game against Motherwell at Rugby Park after lifting the trophy and the the fantastic response from both sets of fans and, and tribute to Jack Kelly. That as as a, a real highlight, but also it must have been such a, a difficult time for you uh, and obviously everyone associated with Commandant Football Club. Yeah, it was. And uh, <clears throat> the difficulty is that we're all human and you have emotions and some of us are more emotional than others. And when you have that moment in your life and you've won the Scottish League Cup final against Celtic, which we, we were, it wasn't normal circumstances that people remember because going into that game, Celtic had won in around 25 games out of the previous 27 and drawn two. And one of those draws was against us when we were 3-0 up and it finished 3-3. People forget about these games that we played against the old firm. And the moment when everybody, like a lot of people, didn't go to the final because they didn't want to see Celtic winning the cup. There was that fear in the supporters. And I pleaded with them to go because we have a great chance. We kept singing the positive song and we were believed to achieve and all we try to convert as many supporters as possible that don't be afraid to go to Hamden to play Celtic. That's what's wrong because it rubs off on the team. It rubs off on the club. And I pleaded with them to go. And a lot of them were saying online that they weren't going to go and watch them such and such winning the match. So to win against all those odds and then be deprived of being able to celebrate was the most incredible uh, emotional, as you said, roller coaster for anybody. Uh, I don't know, the, the players didn't know about it. We kept it from them until we were coming in uh, to the hotel on the bus, you know, and then it got out, obviously. But the supporters weren't affected by that because they weren't hands-on with Liam. Whereas the players and the staff were all hands-on with Liam and emotionally we were attached to Liam. So that hurt, that hurt. I felt really badly deprived of um, being able to celebrate. I never went near any of the celebrations on the pitch. I never went... uh, I was reluctant on the open top bus uh, to acknowledge the support because I was still quite numb and appreciative of Liam. And Michael, the chairman, was very good. He went on the bus. People forget these things. He went, not on the bus, sorry, he went on the ambulance to be a a comforter for Liam, which I thought was very big of him too. And that was that was such a horrible experience because we wanted to be happy. And inside you were trying to be control that mixed emotion. Yeah, I can imagine it must have been really, really horrendous and it it, it was hopefully a, a comforting sign in, in terms of the way that everyone rallied round Liam and, and, and showed their support, not just fans of, of Kilmarnock, fans of rival clubs and everything else. And it, it, it does kind of demonstrate that old adage that it, it is just a game. Football fans can, can really show their class in these difficult times. And I, I think that was certainly a good example of that. Yeah. You, you signed an extension following the Cup victory amidst English interest from from other sides, what, what was uh, was that a, a difficult decision? Did 
because I can imagine that when you're your manager of Kamarno, you've, you've just won a trophy. Where do you go from there? It's a, it's a very difficult one. You're not going to kick on and win the league. So is, is, it, is it the kind of glass ceiling reached at that point? Or did you feel that there was... there was No, more I, wasn't, I wasn't in any way uh, wanting or thinking of moving. And it's just the way the press do it. They, when you do something really well, then they start to look at ways where they can be sensational and say that I would be going to England and all of that stuff. I was prepared for that anyway in my head. I said, that's that's going to come out now, and people are going to put two and two together and get five. So, you know, it's human nature. If, if I'm a journalist, I'm going to write things that are sensational to sell papers or to sell media. So you can understand that uh, coming from them. So that's just something that happens in life. In terms of the, the start of the 2012-2013 season, you, you were given a touchline ban for comments made on a game between Celtic and St Johnston. That was kind of the first of, of a few kind of brushes with the, the Scottish football and authorities. Did, did you feel kind of almost at that stage that it was, it was time to withdraw from from the press stuff and, and maybe be a wee bit more guarded because yeah. Yeah. Every, every time you, you spoke, you seemed to be punished being, for it. My words were being distorted, to be honest. Can you remember what was said in the Celtics and Johnson game? I can, I can remember the I can remember the aftermath of the the Paul Kearney incident uh, in a game at Easter Road, I'm sure it was. Uh, but the, the, the Celtics and Johnson game, I'm not 100% sure on, I must confess. I remember saying in the, on the radio with, uh, I forget his name now, it was about Celtic. I was asked about the magnitude of the old firm. And in relation to that question, it was about, I said straight off the cuff that Celtic, or the, I didn't, I should have used the word giants, but I says the terminology in Northern Ireland would, the, the, I said Celtic were the monsters of Scottish football and I continued to say they were so big in comparison with a lot of the other clubs so it was a complimentary statement which was distorted by the Sun believe it or not no, was it the Sun? it might have been the Scottish Sun and in, t- in terms of the the Hebs Incident, uh, obviously it was a defeat that day and, and Paul Kearney, looking back in the footage, I would say that you, you got it pretty much spot on, but again, the the hammer fell on you and you, you were you were punished for those. those I know, but I think the, S, the SFA weren't happy with me, so any little crumb of uh, opportunity they took it and they punished me like I remember going up for the the uh, referee against St. Johnson it was Kilmarnock against St. Johnson the referee told there was five kisses against me one was throwing the ball onto the pitch right in, in a temper, one was trying to pick a fight with Stevie Lomas, and, the, and I went to the other dugout to do that. One of them was um, gesticulating, and one of them was, um, oh, what was it? Uh, with the linesman saying something to the linesman. All these, there was five things in this episode of the moment when Manny Pascali was sent off after three minutes. And I was called up for it. And I asked for the referee to come into the interview. They allowed that with his side of the story. And what he didn't know was I had video evidence of everything because our video cameraman was on the other side of the stadium video on the match. 
and he videoed the whole dugout, and you could see that I didn't throw the ball onto the pitch. So the four visuals were proved wrong. And the fifth one was me showing dissent. Well, you can't say that I didn't because there was no way of... That's the only thing they did me on was the dissent because I couldn't disprove it. I disproved the other four. And it was the wee boy, I forget his name, his father was the manager. Or, sorry, his father was a referee. Uh, Andrew Dallas. Andrew Dallas. And they were trying to get him up the ladder. And because of that influence, and he told blatant lies in that room, he come in, and when I showed the, visit, the video, he didn't know what way to look. He says, I was gesticulating at the linesman or something, and you could see the linesman was up the pitch, and I said to him in the interview at the thing, I says, well, where, where am I uh, gesticulating at the linesman? I says, you were looking the other way anyway, because we'd seen the whole video, and he was looking the other way. So he didn't see me. He hadn't looked at me once during that little period. So I come out of there, and I was met straight away with a journalist and the camera. They're waiting on me for some sensationalism, and I said, look, I, the referee fabricated evidence against me, which was totally 100% true. But I shouldn't have said it. But it was so angry, so angry that it was decided that I was going to miss a game because of dissent. It was the only thing they could, uh, they couldn't disprove that I couldn't disprove. So that hurt me the way they did that. That was pure manipulation. And the other one, I remember the guy who was the guy at the time that was the main man in the thing. Well, in, in terms of the the league, I know. I what do you call that officer? That oh, the, the compliance dis- officer. I compliance officer. I met him a few months, a couple of months after it, at a dinner, and he's a he's an honest guy. I liked him actually. He was told told the truth. I says, I'm asking you a question here. We're having a beer. I says, I want you to. You don't have to answer it if you don't want to. I says. Was I stitched up, you know, for uh, Dallas to get promotion and not to, to not be punished? He says, can I? I'm not allowed to comment on that. But I have to say you were unfairly treated, massively unfairly treated. Or I don't know the exact words, Andrew, but it was something like that. And that, that stuck with me. And I said, that was unbelievable the way they set me up. So I, I wouldn't have been surprised if my chairman was involved in that. How how much did that begin to affect your your day-to-day job? Because in the, your departure from Kilmarnock, one of the things that was cited was the fact that you had various brush-ins with the, the authorities. Do you think that that began to kind of overshadow your your ability as a manager, you, you were... Yeah, completely... well, I, you know, the, I've won trophies in most clubs that I've been at, and my record speaks for itself, but do you know that I was guilty of falling into the traps of of the media? I'm not blaming the media. The, there's times I was wrong, and I shouldn't have said anything. I'm, I'm much more... Believe me, I, I don't have any problems with media now or since I left Kilmarnock I had no problems so I was very I feel very hurt by the fact that I've got an eternal punishment from the authorities in Scotland and if I went back I honestly believe that the football in the Scottish Premier League would improve because I would bring a, a different A type game to the party with the club any club and I feel deprived of having the opportunity to do that so it's fallen command you move on to Morton a short spell and I guess the the real talking point from that was that game at Aki's towards the end of the season 
the Morton would be relegated. Aki's were obviously needing a massive goal swing to secure promotion. Yeah. They the narrowly missed out, but a 10-2 defeat, that that must have really stung. And, and you were very frank and, and open about how embarrassed you were by the the result yeah. and performance of your players in that day. Was, was that a point of, of no return? Well, at Martin, I don't think I should be blamed for that. Because the inheritance, what I inherited at Martin was uh, toxic from the top to the bottom. And it was toxic and there was lots of things going on. And I know if I was, um, how can I say, I think there was skullduggery or something going on there. I have to be careful what I say, Andrew. Mm -hmm. But that game is one that I still have question marks over. Let's just put it that way. But I don't know. I have no knowledge of what might have gone on with that eight-goal swing or whatever it was. Was it a nine-goal swing? That, uh, yeah, they, they needed. I think they needed nine, and obviously the, the Hamilton, the Alloa, Hamilton, Alloa. Was it not Hamilton? Alloa. Hamilton and Dundee. Was, was it Falkirk or uh, Dundee? Dundee. Yeah. We beat uh, and the week before we were flying at that time. We beat Falkirk and Dundee. Get into that game, and. I wonder, I wonder how that happened. And in terms of the the scoreline was was heavily criticised by Paul Hartley as well. Uh, he compared it to pub league football and, and said that it was just absolutely ridiculous. He, he said that it was laughable. He says he, it didn't didn't happen in professional team, and I agree with him. It shouldn't, but. I think he was he played in the game that they lost eight 0 at Celtic or something. I forget which team, but anyway, I I just try to close my ears from all that criticism because it fell at my door and then the chairman and his son were just and your other guy at Martin. They said I didn't do anything to stop it. <laughs> you know they hadn't a clue what they were talking about, but. Um, it was so. It was so manufactured. But I don't want to talk about that game because it was something that I was embarrassed by. But I feel that I didn't have any control over it because of certain things that might have been set up. After Martin, you had a brief spell in Thailand, and and that's something I've noticed from your. Looking over your career, you, you seem to embrace new challenges and new cultures. Even, I suppose, moving into the women's game as a, as a departure from the norm. It's all, and football. It, it's all football to me. Yeah, if I can get, uh, I've become more selective now. Where I wouldn't have taken the Martin job if I had a stayed back, and I let my passion take over my welfare and my well-being because. I, I shouldn't have taken that job under the circumstances and what I know now, but that's different. Uh, I still regret that, but I've got so many achievements under my belt that I've, um, I feel that I, you're allowed one, aren't you? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, that, and it was well, especially a period of time that I was there and, and the team was rock bottom when I got there, so I felt that was a good challenge and that's what drew me towards it. I wanted to uh, get them back up the table and I've done that sort of type of thing before with clubs and I, I was confident I could deliver, but I didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. So that hurt badly. And then, then it was on to Derry City before taking up your your role with the Northern Ireland, Ireland women's team. you clearly have a, a real passion for the game in general. What is your 
what is your aspirations? Would would you foresee a time that you'd perhaps like to to return to management in Scotland? You kind of intimated that that was that was something that you you would yeah. maybe consider there. I know, and I don't think my name should be tarnished over there because I the, the style of football we played, the achievements and all of that. It was a really exciting time for the supporters. And I think I had a, a big part to play in that. And I would like to think that I would have been welcome back into the Scottish game. They were afraid to take chances with me, but hopefully they can see that I don't bother with the media uh, hardly any way now at all. I, am, I do interviews like this and, and things, but I don't fall into any traps anymore. And that, do, do you feel that that has actually been something that's that's kind of you mentioned the, the word tarnished there? Do you, do you feel that sometimes you have to kind of almost get your chance to to go in the record and and almost show that you're not the person that was portrayed by the the Scottish media yeah. during the time there? Anybody who's worked with me knows that the qualities that I bring to the table and what I can do, uh, and it'll be very difficult. Because they look at that more than they look at my record. If I sent you my CV, you'd employ me tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like what I've done in the game. And I would say, you know, there must be maybe, there are bound to be some people over there that thinks he would do a good job for my club. And, um, you know, it's. I still feel vexed about having to leave Scotland, but on top of that, I feel as if I would be ready to come back. At, not immediately, but when you know when someone's looking at a manager, start applying again. I don't know. And and one thing that is for absolute certain is you've you've got a place in command folklore. There was prominent figures within the, the supporter base saying that you were the best thing to ever happen to Kilmarnock uh, during your time there. Winning a, a major trophy is is a huge achievement for any provincial club. And, yeah. and the Kilmarnock fans had a real loyalty to you. They, they backed you throughout your time there. Uh, and you seem to, to share that affinity for them. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, definitely. You know, I rank them as my club in, in Scotland, and that's the one that I follow. But who knows what might happen again? You know, it's good to see James in there involved in the club. He knows the qualities that I bring, uh, which would be beneficial to me. But they've got a manager in place anyway, so... Um, but I wouldn't say never. You know, who knows what happens in the future? There's... There's jobs that I would be very more selective now, and I think Scotland is a good market. But I regret when I could have went to England at that time when it was going well with Kilmarnock, and I stayed loyal, and maybe that was a mistake. You know, there's a lot of managers that wouldn't have stayed loyal to the club. Yeah, and that's that, that's certainly true, and I suppose you could relate it to the, the kind of situation with with Steve Clark, who was offered a a real dream job uh, for for any Scottish yeah, manager to get the yeah, the option yeah. of managing the national side. Uh, he had he had fantastic success. Uh, there was the Alessio kind of almost felt like an, a bit of an experiment at Kilmarnock, and then Alex Dyer's taking over the reins and. And steadied the ship somewhat after a quite difficult start to last season. There was obviously the, the real disappointment after qualifying for Europe to go out in Wales. That was a, a result that was kind of described as quite embarrassing and a real blotch in, in Scottish football's copybook. But the club seems to be going in the right direction. They've managed to get off to a winning start uh, the weekend there. But Alex Dyer... Has, has earned his place at the, the, the top table and, and, and seems to be a manager that has got his, his own principles and philosophies. And yeah. 
seems to be a good fit for Kilmarnock. I that's good. Yeah, I'm I'm pleased for that. That's really good, and I'm sure that uh, hopefully he can build something there and get Kilmarnock back up again and around the upper six. You know, that would be really good. Uh, and what, what's your what's your views on the, just to finish up and in terms of the the season ahead? Obviously, we've only had one round of fixtures. In fact, it's not even complete because there's a, there's another game tonight. That's but, right. And uh, in, in terms of it's, it's going to be a season like no other. Uh, it's been it's been quite surreal watching the games uh, with no supporters. But yeah. there's a there's a real battle on in terms of of ten in a row. And below that, you've got the likes of Aberdeen, Hibs, Kilmarnock, Motherwell. The, the kind of the fight for being best of the rest, and it it looks like it's going to be a tight league and a, another competitive season. Scott, I think Celtic and Rangers have got off to uh, good starts. Uh, it's probably the usual, you know, you've got Aberdeen, Motherwell, who won't go toe-to-toe, but they'll try and um, be in that upper part, you know, the top four. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, Andrew, because you can't really tell till after 10 fixtures so, I'd say after the first round of opponents, where you've played the nine games and then maybe into the second round of fixtures, you'll have a clearer picture. And in terms of Northern Ireland, you you hope to, to be back to, to competitive football quite soon in, in terms of the international scene. The, the Champions League games are, are coming up at the end of the month. So, Domestic football will return shortly. What what are your hopes and ambitions for that role? In, in terms of this is a, a real purple patch for women's football. In, in terms of, I think it's garnering much more media exposure. As yeah. I've already alluded to, I, I think that people are are recognising the qualities within the game, and it, it's attractive have, to be the fan. The, the problems the women's game have is that. The economy of it is not as big as the man's game, and there's less. They're not. They're afraid to start the league for some reason. I don't know why. And I think, you know, they're talking about October, which is ridiculous. If you look at the way all the leagues started, I'm sure they're tearing their hair out over there in the women's game, because. They can't get going again. We're training away in, in Northern Ireland. And they're saying, they're talking about October start. There's no logic in that. I don't understand the logic of it. Is there a bit of fear, given that, looking at Scotland, for instance, there's a lot of the players have full-time jobs and they've got, they've got to kind of sustain themselves out with football. Uh-huh. Can that potentially lose players to the game in that respect? Because yeah, definitely. The priorities change over that long period of time without football. Without a doubt. It can affect them, definitely. Uh, I think that the women's game needs to be more professional in terms of full-time playing. Uh but they need the support to, uh, you know, the infrastructure of their clubs, I feel, would help promote that game and more money thrown at it, I, I think would be a big thing for the women's game. Yeah, and it, it certainly it's going to be challenging times in, in terms of that and I, I kind of do question of whether, given that there's the, the, these games attract less of a, a crowd as well, uh, it would yeah. be nice to see it just being almost kind of fast tracked to. I know. Uh, I know. Used as a, a test event or something like that in in terms of of getting football back and avoid that scenario where you lose people to the game because that that would be that would be pretty tragic if people are having to actually choose leaving football as an option uh, or. Or putting football on the back burner because of 
had financial concerns and the, the kind of stresses of this this kind of uncertain time and the just the way that the the world is just now it's very very difficult but Kenny I would, I would really like to thank you for your time today it's, it's been absolutely fascinating listening to yeah. you um and I wish you all the best going forward as well uh, I'm sure that you'll you'll do a fantastic job and it would be fantastic to see you back north of the border and, and some of the faculty and they're not too distant future no problems Andrew thank you thanks very much Kenny take care yeah. thank you bye bye Better life.